Okay, let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. Um, my talk uh, is entitled The Uniqueness of Western Music. And I should specify, perhaps, just in case there's any uh, um, uh, lack of clarity on this matter, uh, what I am speaking of is largely Western classical music, and largely Western classical music from the period uh, of about 1600 to 1900. Now, you can stretch it a little bit in either direction, and I'll say more about it as we go on. But this is, this is the era of... There are, there are certain aspects that apply to this era, other aspects that would definitely apply <coughs> before and beyond. Uh, but we'll talk about that more as we move on. Um, in the 20th century, all sorts of things are happening in the 21st century. Um, and we could talk about those too. But I decided to focus on what I consider to be the, the classic phase of Western art music, about 1600 to 1900. Um, so let me begin with my formal talk as written. Um, in his book, The Arts of the Beautiful, the 20th century Thomas philosopher Ishion Gilson discusses being, truth, goodness, and the beautiful, saying that, quote, take one of those, saying that, quote, there is a field, very narrow indeed, but real, within which man's power truly seems free to exercise itself. It is not the domain of being. Man has no freedom in that direction, nor for that matter in the direction of truth. Finally, man cannot create in the domain of good. Therefore, it remains for us to cultivate the narrow domain of the arts of the beautiful, wherein freedom prevails. That's the end of the quote. The reason for my talk is to point out this aspect of freedom and creativity in the very structure, the very system of Western music. In particular, Western art music, what I am saying is that this creativity is exercised not only within individual compositions, but in the entire conception of the way music is put together. So let me repeat that, because that's a very key point I'm going to make. It's not creativity only within the context of individual compositions, but within the very way in which music is made, structured. It's, it's much more unique than many people realize, and I'm going to discuss some basic points. Continuing with my text, but isn't all music basically the same, one may ask? Isn't music a universal language, quote-unquote? the same substance underneath a few superficial differences which give it a cultural flavor? My answer is no. I'm not saying that there are no music, musical universals. There are. But they are not necessarily what some people think they are. Some of these things which we take for granted as normal were, in fact, marvelous exercises of man's freedom, indeed Western man's freedom, uh, specifically, uh, to create within this narrow domain of the beautiful. They are true acts of genius, and it is precisely the uniqueness of our civilization's approach to music which I find most interesting precisely because it reflects our religion, our philosophies, our outlooks, our values, in short, the things we hold dear. So what are the characteristics that are unique to Western music? There are four which I will discuss. The first is that Western music is composer controlled. What I mean by this is that the music is decided upon in advance of any formal performance in great detail by one individual whom we designate as the composer. As far as I can tell, this is a concept originating in the West. It's certainly spread to other cultures so that we now have Chinese classical composers like Tan Dun, we have the Tokyo Philharmonic, etc. 
But these show clear influences of Western civilization. They got it from us, when they're not just doing our music. Still, one may ask, certainly someone has to compose any sort of music, even simple folk songs. What do you mean? How can there not be a composer? Well, composers certainly exist in traditional non-Western societies, but in a way similar to the concept of authorship in the ancient world. There would be a tradition, in some cases, attributing at most a melody and lyrics to usually a famous figure uh, from the past. It might be more or less accurate, but the key point is that the way in which the piece is performed, the way in which it is brought alive in the present, that's what music is. It's not like painting or sculpture where the, the creator makes it and then, you know, aside from the you know, time and decay and things like that, it's basically set. It's there. That's not what music is. Music is something that is always made new. It's always brought alive. Okay? So the way in which it is brought alive in the present is up to the performers. It's up to the performers. Granted, their interpretation would be based on customs and traditions of performance, often learned from a master teacher, but the key point is that the performers very much have the final say-so. We could say that this sort of music is performer-controlled. I, I will say, uh, I'll put that up. Western music is composer-controlled rather than performer-controlled. There is no composer in these other cultures' musics in the sense of a master planner who, sitting in his silk robes at the piano in his study, decides that in measure 36 on the third beat there will be an E-flat with a staccato dot and a dynamic of mezzo forte played by the third clarinet, or that there even must be a third clarinet. This would be unthinkable in a traditional Western society. There may be some exceptions, but if they exist, they must be small in number. The major non-Western civilizations of the Orient, the Indian subcontinent, the Middle East, do not approach things in this way, even in their art music. And they do have art music of, of considerable subtlety, but they do not have composers the way we do. Let me give a final example to contrast these two different approaches to music making, even within Western civilization. Think of a modern pop rock group doing what is called a cover, that is their own version of an already existing tune. What they are doing is something that's common to humanity and the way most people make music. They are taking pre-existing material that they inherited, even if it was only five years ago from someone, but pre-existing material, the basic melody, chords, lyrics, and as performers working out their own version of it, their own arrangement of it. That's what they call a cover, if you're not familiar with that. I didn't know the term until a few years ago. Contrast, okay, so on the one hand, this. Contrast this to a certain, a certain type of classical performer or conductor who is a devotee of what is called um, either variously the authenticity movement or the historical performance movement. These are the types who would never perform Bach at the piano because, of course, Bach wrote for the harpsichord. Such people, easily caricatured, and unfairly so at times, engage in extensive research studying original manuscripts, sometimes even pen strokes, directions of pen strokes, and types of ink used, all to the end of determining the true intentions of the composer. This has the effect of removing even more of the already limited interpretive freedom uh, which classical performers traditionally have enjoyed. All of this is to the end of replicating as closely and minutely as possible what are thought to be the intentions of the great man himself, the master planner, the composer. Okay? So that's an important point to do the contrast. It's an extreme version of classical music, but it makes my point. So that's the first characteristic. It's composer control to an extent of unknown in the rest of the world, the rest of uh, the civilized world. Now, something else is necessary for this one individual to have that much control from beyond the grave, beyond the grave, with people who are alive, who are bringing music alive. How can he have that much power and that much control? This is the second character of Western, characteristic of Western music. Second characteristic is exacting notational 
In fact, we have the most highly developed notational system in the world. Not the only one, mind you, but certainly the most highly developed. Many non-Western cultures have some sort of rudimentary notational system, often just a few dots and lines above the text to jog the memory of the performer who's already memorized it. He's learned through an oral tradition. This is how Western notation indeed began. Look at this 9th century example showing the earliest form of Gregorian chant and thus Western notation. So on the handout, look at the very first page, figure one. Now you're going to have to turn it sideways to, to see what it looks like. But notice you have the Latin text. Now what, you also have something that's unusual. Uh, this is very rare, but just above the Latin text you actually have letters. The, the, the names of the notes. This is a highly quirky manuscript I happen to copy. This is not common. Uh, usually that wouldn't be there at all, but if you look above the letters, you see these funny lines and hooks and dots and squiggles. That's the earliest form of Western musical notation. And it's very clearly something out of, coming out of an oral tradition. You were expected to memorize a cantor who led the scola, had to have all these melodies in his head. He had to memorize them all. But then they start coming up with this system to jog the memory of uh, pretty much just the cantor. The, the rest of the scola didn't, uh, I, I don't think they had this. It was just for the, for the cantor when he was teaching this to them. That's the earliest form of Western notation. Dots, squiggles, hooks. Um, it's what we call in campo aperto. And any Latinist here would know that that means um, in an open field. There are no staff lines. Okay. It's, a, it's. I mean, like I said, it's kind of unusual to have those note the D, D, F, D, F. That's highly unusual. You were just. It was just meant to remind you that. Oh, okay. Then the note. The notes go up here, and then they go down here. You had to have that basically in your head already. It was just to jog your memory. And this, and this particular manuscript happened to be a seminal one because it helped us recover the melodies of some chants that had been lost uh, because it interprets... The, we, we had plenty of manuscripts with the lines and the hooks and the squiggles, but uh, this was, I think, the only one that actually put the note names in as well. Um, okay. Now, by the 12th century we get this interesting adaptation of chant notation. It's called ligature notation. Uh, ligature. And it simply means a linking of the notes in uh, the Gregorian chant notation. And that's, that's figure two. Um, now, it indicates rhythm, but in a somewhat quirky way. Now, the actual manuscript is it's kind of hard to read, so I, what I put at the top was a modern transcription. Now, already we're getting away from the lines and the dots and the squiggles, and we're starting to have the actual square note uh, notation with the, uh, the, the four-line staff uh, initially. Um, well, what does this ligature, ligature notation do? It's the first sort of relatively clear rhythmic notation. And I say we specify relatively uh, clear because... You can, you can read it, but it's quirky. It's, I almost think of it as like a baseball coach or a, or a catcher who gives these elaborate signals. Kind of the point is to make sure that the, the uninitiated don't, aren't able to read them. Well, let's take a look at I, I don't want to go into all of it because we don't have time for that, but let's just take a look at the example. Um, now, if you notice, uh, it's letter A. Okay, that's what it would have looked like. You have a group of three, then a group of two, a group of two, a group of two. Guess what that means? That means what's in letter B. It means the rhythm is long, short, long, short, long, short, long, short. What was called the first rhythmic mode. Um, why? Why is that? Well, just because that's what they decided. It's not intuitive at all. Like I said, it's like those complicated base baseball signals. But that's, that was a first attempt at notating rhythm. Um, now, by the 14th century, um, we have the first form of notation, Franconian notation, named after Franco of Cologne, which begins to look like modern, begins to look like modern Western notation. It has stems, different shaped note heads to indicate different durations, even signs for rests, and that's on the next page, figure three. I give you a, a nice example of a manuscript in Franconian notation, and I even give you a little table beneath which uh, indicates the, the note shapes and the stems um, uh, indicate the actual duration. 
So this is, it still doesn't quite, looks a little bit still more like chant notation, but because of these innovations where the shapes of the note has the stems indicate the actual duration, that's a, step, a major step in the direction of modern Western notation. Okay. Um, but let us look briefly at an example of non-Western musical notation, music for the Korean harp, and that's figure four. It is interesting because as a form of non-Western music, non-Western art music, it is both very specific and yet very general compared to Western notation. First of all, there is, it's kind of big and clunky. Uh, secondly, there's a redundancy within it. On the left-hand side, you have the symbol tang. Uh, on the right-hand side, you have the symbol kung. They both refer to the pitch to be played, B-flat. It is just that one symbol is Korean and the other Chinese. And uh, if you know anything about Korean culture, Chinese culture had a big influence on it. Um, notice also that in the middle there are symbols indicating that the pitch is to be played on the big string at the fifth stopping point by the left thumb with an outward, not an inward, but an outward stroke. Then this indeed would affect the timbre of the sound. If any of you know about playing a stringed instrument, especially like guitar or something, if you play an open string D as opposed to playing uh, the, the pressing down the fret for the G string, it's a different timbre. It's the same pitch, but it's a different timbre. So they're going for something really subtle in this. Um, and then the outward is supposed to be inward uh, of, the, of the left thumb. Now the notation, but the notation says nothing about the duration of the note. It's dynamic or the tempo of the piece. It is not that these things are unimportant. It is just that, again, there is no centralized planner, no composer who makes these decisions. The closest thing you would have to what would be a school of interpretation, uh, it would be a certain Korean harp player performing it using a particular rhythm because his teacher did so, and his teacher before him did so, and so on and so on. Those things are not considered very important, so they didn't notate them. Or at least, I shouldn't say unimportant. They're, 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 they're left open to interpretation of different schools. So there's no central authority you could go to who can confirm that, indeed, the note played on the fifth stopping point with an outward stroke with the left thumb should be given two, not three, but two counts. There's nothing like that. So it's still, even in their art music that does incorporate a certain notation of subtleties, it's left up to the performer. It's left up to the performer to decide many more things than our art music composers would, uh, would bear doing. <laughs> um, now, moving on to the third characteristic of Western music. We may seem to be taking a bit of a detour by dealing with what is in its most extreme expression a shadow tradition. Nonetheless, it is something that is arguably an integral part of the tradition of Western music and would be unthinkable without the first two characteristics, the composer and the elaborate notational system. Um, I identify it using the German term Augenmusik, which I will explain to you. It translates literally as eye music, music of the eye. For, um, <laughs> for any musicologists in the audience, I am using this term in a broader sense than it is usually used in the discipline. However, the rest of you are probably thinking, what on earth is he talking about? Isn't music supposed to be heard? Isn't it for the ear rather than the eye? Well, in its most extreme manifestation, Augenmusik is music that is organized, often in a very clever and strict way, but in such a way that this organization is only evident to the eye. Let me give a very simple example with a rondo of the 13th century uh, composer Willaume Machot with the descriptive title, uh, I hope I get the French right, Ma fin est mon commencement. My end is my beginning. That's figure five. The composition can be performed either, and it's two pages, uh, if you look, the composition can be performed either forwards or backwards because half of the way through it reverses itself goes backwards. I have a report of it. 
just the music reverses itself, not the words. That's right. is, um, in a certain sense, this is a very clever trick. Um, if you're not used to this music, I want to assure you that um, it, even if he didn't use this technique of eye music, it, it would have sounded basically the same. You, you might be unfamiliar with music of this year and say, oh, well, it sounds kind of funny to me. That must be the effect of this technique. No, it's not the effect of the technique. The whole point is he wrote it in such a way that it sounds just like regular music. That's what 13th century uh, or rather 14th, yeah, third, I'm sorry, 13th century music, polyphonic music sounded like. Um, so it's almost like straightjacketing yourself. It's, all, it's coming up with this clever thing that tie one behind, hand behind your back and still being able to write music. Western, there's a certain tradition of this in the West that they love doing this. Well, another example is Johannes Akagem's Misa Prolationum for four voices. This is figure six. Notice how the Kyrie begins with only two written parts, but that since each part has two clefs and meter signatures, one can derive a total of four parts from this. And so I have what the performer would have actu performers would have actually seen. That's the letter A. And notice that is at least a kind of a variation on Franconian notation still. And then B is the transcription of what they would actually produce reading the notation. Um, so maybe I could get just a little bit technical for a while. The, the, in letter A, the superior part on top produces um, both the soprano and the alto part. So you can read it. It's, it's, they're basically... The clefs indicate that there are th the parts are a third apart, and they also indicate that one part is in 2-4, uh, and then the other part is in 3-4. That's the circle. Circle is perfection, which is considered the number three, the trinity. So a circle meant 3-4 in that time. A half circle meant imperfection, which is 2-4. And then if you look at the the uh, what's called the counterpart on top and produces the tenor and the bass part, again, he gets two parts from that because they're a third apart, but they have different meters. The circle with the dot means 9-8, or what we would call triple um, uh, compound time, and the half circle with the dot, dot 6-8 time, or uh, duple compound time. So look at this. I mean, this is just a tour de force of, of, of something that was in, in complicated and yet intelligently planned out. Um, let me play it at least a little bit of this so you can hear it.
want to make the point, unless uh, you're not familiar with music of this era and think, oh, well, it sounds funny because of this technique. No, this is basically what any sort of music, polyphonic music of the late Middle Ages, early Renaissance would have sounded like, particularly that of Bach again. But you can find this. I'm giving early music examples, but Bach did things like this too. He, Bach loved canons and different sorts of canons. Uh, the musical offering uh, works like that, or his work Contrapunctus. He loved doing these elaborate tricks with things that you're not necessarily going to hear. Now, canons are easier to hear, so those are kind of shading away from the, this more extreme tradition of Augenmusik. But um, anyway, so the point is to straightjacket yourself, to tie your hand behind your back with this clever visual structure, and yet produce music at the same time. Um, and the point is, this wouldn't have been possible without the central planner, without the composer. It wouldn't have been possible without um, uh, an elaborate notational system. So, perhaps a bit of a shadow tradition or a side tradition, nonetheless, it's, um, uh, it's something that comes out of that. Um, and you don't find this in other cultures. They can't do that. Not that there are, you know, aren't profound intellects or, or, or lively intellects in other cultures, but you've got to have those two things present to do something like this. It's a bit of an extreme example. So that's the third characteristic. characteristic. Well, this brings us to the final and, in a sense, central characteristic unique to Western music. And that is harmony. Yes, harmony. At least harmony in a particular modern sense. I will be explaining this shortly. However, let us say that the idea of a chord progression, for example, say of a C chord, well, I might as well turn this on now, a C chord proceeding to an A minor chord, moving to an F major chord, going to a G chord. I always hate these little things, but anyway, so um, C chord. Oops, no, that's not the way to do it. I'll do it here. C chord. Going to an A minor chord. Going to an F chord. Going to a G chord. Returning to a C chord. Okay, something like that. That's what I mean by chord progression. Um, I guess this isn't as handy as I thought. This is a very modern Western development. This is not common to traditional non-Western music, or even Western music until well into the second millennium. Surprising it should be, but it's true. The phenomenon of a chord progression is between 500 and 1,000 years old, okay? relatively new in human history. So how is non-Western or even early Western music constructed? How can it exist without modern harmony? There are. There are various approaches. The simplest of which is what we call a monophonic texture. Well, let me put the noun form rather than the adjective. Monophony. What does that mean? Monophony, one sound. It means one voice or at least one melody, I think is better. It could be sung by many voices, but they're all singing the same thing. That's what monophony is. Uh, Gregorian chant is a good example of this texture. But other non-Western chants are similarly monophonic. That is, they are melody only with no thought of accompaniment, harmonic or otherwise. Let us listen briefly to an example, of, since we know Gregorian chant are on it pretty well. Uh, let's uh, listen to an example of uh, a Quranic or Muslim chant. This is perhaps more of a heightened form of pitched recitation of a text than music, but it is still to the point. Also notice the quarter tones. That's why in some ways it might sound a little bit uh, out of tune. Uh, seven. Bismillah. 
So um, some might disagree, but I would still consider this to be a form of monophony, but modified monophony. It's got a very simple drone-like accompaniment, but one of rhythmic, uh, more rhythmic interest and complexity as well as drums. But it doesn't destroy or undermine the basic melody-oriented structure of, of this sort of music. Um, and incidentally, this is classical Indian uh, music. The, the, the Bollywood stuff is uh, uh, very heavily influenced by Western music, especially Western popular music, but it keeps the kind of those accidentals. Um, but this, this is uh, classical uh, Indian music. Now, the next musical texture that of which I'm going to speak is called polyphony. So we have monophony, and we move on to polyphony, polyphony, literally many voices or many, many melodies, two or more melodies occurring at the same time. This is a texture that has been used by man throughout the world. However, we have two interim stages to this texture, um, at least as commonly used in the West. First is some sort of parallelism. Um, the practice of doubling a melody at a particular interval is common throughout the world and has various names. In medieval Europe, the practice of doubling a chant melody at the interval of a perfect fourth or fifth was called organum. Let me put that up for you. Okay. So what I'm speaking about is something like... Um, Let's take a chant melody at the beginning, like, a, I don't know, Bainy Creator. It would be like doubling it. You know, the fifth blow. That's, that's called organum. You've probably heard that sound um, before. It's, it's a type of parallelism. Um, in, uh, in ancient England... British Isles, they love to double melodies at the distance of a third. So that would be something like, uh, uh, like uh, this was called gimel in the, the British Isles. They love to sing that way. It's a folk custom. Um, of course, this is more or less what modern Americans do around a campfire when they say they're harmonizing, singing in parallel thirds. And then there are various re forms of folk song in the regions in, in at least what was Yugoslavia, where they sing in parallel seconds, which I won't reproduce that for you. But I actually have a fascinating recording. Um, uh, they, they love that. Uh, anyway, in my opinion, this parallelism isn't really polyphony. Some people call it polyphony. I call it an interim stage to polyphony. Because though there are two melodies, they are not independent of each other. They are chained exactly to each other, but at a particular distance. Perhaps it could be better dubbed monophony in a mirror. So it's like, you know seeing yourself in a mirror, okay? It's, it's really you, but just kind of a little, at a, a little bit of a distance. Um, however, the notion of a point-to-point -point correspondence of each melody is the beginning of harmony, something that we will discuss in a few minutes. But I want to, by what I'm talking about is setting up this idea we got, let's say, melody A, along, melody B, moving along, but we're lining up the notes like this, vertically. Even if they're chained exactly to each other, this point-to-point -point vertical correspondence is the beginning of what we would consider modern harmony, but in a few minutes we'll get to that. Um, okay, now, a second interim stage to polyphony is a type of texture which musicologists have dubbed Heterophony. Some just say it's a type of polyphony, but they started making a distinction, and I think rightfully so. 
Um, let's see, where are we? Okay, uh, heterophony is the simultaneous performance of a melody and one or more variations of that melody at the same time. So, okay, uh, this is parallelism. I do this quite as neatly. Heterophony is melody A and melody A prime going on at the same time. And there may or may not be a point-to-point -point correspondence. Um, here is an example known as Gaelic psalm singing. Although it manifests itself in post-Reformation Scotland, its roots are probably much deeper. It's probably a folk custom that was simply uh, seized upon. Uh, any, anyway, um, notice that the... And while I, when I play them... Notice that the pre-center, uh, they still practice this in certain places in Scotland, and the congregation sing the same melody in unison, but each member, at least some of them, many of them, put their own variations on the melody. It's not just like a bad congregation. They're deliberately doing this. Uh, they're not singing in lockstep unison, even the way the Christendom congregation does, although we kind of do it slowly. Um, they're deliberately adding variations that the other people aren't. So, let me... Gaelic psalm singing. Gaelic, okay. Gaelic, yeah. It's, it, this is for a congregation in Scotland. Okay, yeah. So this is, this is a very old tradition. Yeah. Um, now, the, the, what they're doing, like I said, it, it might kind of sound like just a sloppy form of congregational singing, but I think you, you people heard that some people are singing variations on that melody while others aren't, and then others are still singing other variations on this, and they deliberately do this. I think kind of it's a reformational individualist notion of the believer's direct relationship to God. That's, that's how they, after the fact, justify it. But this is just an old practice. This is, not, uh, this is fairly common done. And I think you can also hear a connection with black soul singing in this, right? Now, I believe that heterophony, although I'm not an uh, ethnomusicologist, I think heterophony already existed in Africa. But certainly some have made the argument for a connection very specifically, I think this was on PBS a few years ago, between Gaelic psalm singing and black soul singing, because there would indeed have been a connection when they both meet in America with the Scottish Presbyterians who owned slaves. And so they think there might have been some sort of uh, influence um, on the black slaves, or at least the black slaves might have found it congenial to something they already basically knew. But anyway, so that's Gaelic psalm singing. Now, one of the things that's interesting about heterophony is, as I said, you have the, the how do the lines harmonize? Now, you're not kind of getting a point-to-point -point correspondence in places, but for the most part, it's not. How do they harmonize? They certainly don't harmonize in the way we would think of today. Uh, they're all singing the same pitch or in octaves with men and women. They harmonize, I'm saying in a metaphorical sense, they harmonize only in the sense that there are two or more vertical simultaneities, which could be dubbed A and A prime. And then you, you hear that connection in your mind. Uh, and it, it has an interesting effect. But it's not harmony in the modern Western sense. 
Now let me play one more example of heterophony from the other side of the globe, Japan, just to show how widespread this practice is. This is Japanese koto music. Um, again, it is, the mel it is a melody with a simultaneously embellished version of that melody. It's different, but it's the same basic technique. Um, example you, you have you know pitch bending you have sometimes dyads that is two notes being played at once uh, but I, what I was trying to point out is those those sharper plucked stringed instruments are playing certain notes and then you have in the background those softer I think it's more bowed stringed instruments which are not playing as many notes but they're always lining up so they're playing fewer notes but it's of the same basic melody, and the other instruments are playing more notes, but it is, uh, again, of the, of a variation on that melody. So it's a different part of the globe, different style of music, different culture, many different things, but it's still basically heterophony. It's not harmony, really. I mean, they're plucking these dyads, and that's kind of the closest thing, but that's, that's not harmony as we would understand it. But it's, it's, it's a preliminary stage towards polyphony, and I'm going to have to talk about the connection between polyphony and harmony. Uh, so let us review. The two forms of musical texture that I've discussed, parallelism and heterophony, could be considered early forms of polyphony. In my opinion, however, they are merely eccentric forms of, of monophony. If parallelism could be considered monophony in a mirror, then heterophony might be dubbed monophony in a circus mirror. Uh, because it replicates the melody but distorts it, or at least alters it a bit. Again, these are techniques common the world over. Well, what is the genius, the uniqueness of Western music, at least in the realm of harmony? It is precisely this, the development of the contrapuntal realm in such a way that the independence of the individual lines is preserved. And yet they are brought together in a point-to-point -point correspondence, a unity, out of which proceeds the harmony which we know as chords. Polyphony precedes harmony. Harmony is the byproduct of the Western conception of polyphony. Now, I like to identify myself as kind of a Mr. Goodwrench. I know it's under the hood in terms of music. I can explain in great detail, because I was trained as a composer and as a music theorist. I'm not really a philosopher. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not a historian. Um, so w why this came about, I'm not sure. I did speak to our previous uh, uh, lecturer, uh, Professor Mart. He thought it might have something to do, so I'll give you his opinion. I think it's interesting. Uh, he thought it ha might have something to do with the concern in Western culture of reconciling the opposites, which I suppose has been a concern of most cultures, but the particular crisis we had in relating faith and reason um, in, 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 at that time of the 12th century or so, uh, that in taking seeming contradictories and explaining how they could both be true without tr being true contradictories, bringing different things into harmony. It's a possible explanation. I don't know it, but if something, if something like that is very much in the mind of people. Uh, it's going to affect, I think, culturally what they do and what they make in terms of their music. Um, so again, I want to stress this, because uh, I think this is a pretty good sentence. Let me reread it. Um, the uniqueness of Western harmony is the development of the contrapuntal realm in such a way that we have a true independence of the individual melodies. They're truly different melodies. That's preserved, and yet they're brought together into harmony.
Okay, let's uh, do a, a, a review of using, by means of a short example of, uh, of uh, a three-note fragment, giving them different treatments. So look at, look at figure seven in the handout. This is a very short three-note example. Uh, letter A. Three-note fragment. Well, I didn't write this out, but let me layer a heterophonic treatment on top of it. So, just a variation of that. And I'll try to come up with something. So, something like. Uh, that would be heterophony, okay? A melody and the simultaneous embellishment of it. What is B? What is example B? If you look underneath, it's the same three-note fragment. I just doubled it at the fifth. Okay, so that's parallelism. What about C? Example C is the same thing, parallelism, but in thirds. D. Let's give D a lesson. Very short, very simple, but this is to the point. Look at what I did. So what was that? Now this is a grand simplification of an extremely complex thing, but I believe that one gets to the heart of the matter by saying that this, what I just played for you, believe it or not, is the key to the uniqueness of Western harmony. It's called contrary motion. first example, when I sang the heterophony, I did a, an embellishment of uh, at the unison, but it was an embellishment. Then B and C were parallel. But in D, you had that da-da-da, but I added a line that went da-da-da. So while the, the original line was going up, the second line was going down. That's called contrary motion. You see, at some point in the second millennium, probably about the 13th century, we collectively made a decision. We in the West decided that while we wanted point-to-point -point correspondence, a vertical point-to-point -point correspondence between lines, and I want to give you the, the, uh, some etymology, point-to-point, punctus contra punctum. We in the West decided that while we wanted point-to-point -point correspondence between lines, we decided that and we decided we wanted the vertical grid, but we didn't want the melody in a mirror. We didn't want parallelism. We want the lines to seem to be independent of each other. And that effect is achieved by using as much contrary motion as possible. There's, like I said, there's a lot more to it. Um, you'd have to take uh, years of harmony and, and counterpoint classes to fully understand that, but I, I have. I have. I'm Mr. Goodwrench, so I can boil it down for you. That would be my extreme simplification, but there's a big grain of truth in it. That, uh, well, no, I'm sorry, it's not there. I didn't put it up, but that count, uh, contrary motion, that's the key that helps you understand what we're trying to do. Multiple melodies which are allowed to preserve their independence and yet come together into harmony. Um, so, okay, we, we, we want them to preserve their independence. We want individual, but we want individual lines to cohere into some sort of harmony. We do it by means of vertical alignment and, and this is key, you have to have this also, by the insistence that certain harmonic intervals be used at certain points along that vertical grid largely constant intervals, with the more controlled use of dissonant intervals in other places. This would take, again, several years of theory classes to fully cover this in comprehensive fashion. However, uh, let's just uh, say that um, the history of style, 
meaning classical, Baroque, Romantic, Renaissance. The history of style can be written in terms of the history of dissonance treatment. Sometimes very strict, sometimes less so. Let us now take a look at one sort of dissonance treatment, and, and please bear with me, I'll try to uh, wrap this up pretty soon. Uh, and it's, well, but I, I hope this will be of some use. We'll look at that of Palestrina during the Renaissance. His notion of dissonance treatment was quite strict, and that's why it has the sound it has. Um, now, the, if you've never studied any music theory, this might, and if you don't know much about music, this might really throw you, but again, please just bear with me. I have to, for five measures, take you through something, uh, and I hope it will be of some use to you. Um, so the first point is that, uh, that, that to make is that we will be ca calculating harmonic intervals. Again, we're looking at point-to-point -point correspondence. So from one voice up to the next voice, that's the harmonic interval. So that's the first point to make. The other is that for our, um, and then we always calculate from the lowest note upward. That's how composers did it. And that's how they structured their pieces, and that's how it makes sense to us. The other main point is that for our purposes, dissonant intervals are seconds, sevenths, fourths, and tritones. I'll explain what those are. So just put these up for now. Dissonant intervals are seconds, sevenths, fourths, and tritones. A tritone is a type of a fourth. Uh, so let me just quickly play. Um, we, I've played fifths, okay? I've played octaves. Those have a certain rock-solid, stable sort of a sound. Uh, thirds are more sweet-sounding. Well, what does second sound like? Okay, they're more dissonant. Sevenths, well, they're different types of sevenths. But those are similarly dissonant or even more dissonant. And then the fourths. That's a little bit quirky. You say, well, oh, that, no, no, I don't think that's so bad. But they considered those dissonances that had to be resolved. That's part of the grammar they set up. And then the tritone does have a more sharper sound, which they would avoid that as well. Um, okay, so let's just look at figure eight. I, I'll, I just want to take you through a few measures. What we're always doing, now this is a type of counterpoint called imitative counterpoint, because if you look at the staggered entries, first the contus, then the altus, then the tenor, I, I, the basus comes in after measure five, so I, we, didn't, we didn't even get to that. So it's a staggered entry of voices, but there's got to be a point-to-point -point correspondence in the way they line up with each other vertically. So let me just at least take you through the first two measures. We start with an F. Okay, in the contours part. Nothing's above it. Well, nothing would be above it. Nothing's below it. So it's all alone. Then, the altus part comes in with a C. But it's got a G above it. What interval is that? I'll tell you. It's a fifth. Okay, that's a constant interval. And then when it moves to A, it's still above the C. And that's a constant interval as well. A sixth. Now let's move into the second measure. Notice that we have a D in the alto part and an F in the contours part. That's a third. Uh-oh, we've got a parallel, E and G, that's another third, but you can do that for a little while and not destroy the independence of the voices because notice what we're doing. The G moves up to an A in the compass part, but the E moves down to a C. Contrary motion, like any good composer should do uh, after a little bit of parallel motion. Then he goes, so that's C up to the A, that's a sixth. Then the D and the B flat, well, it's parallel motion, but you're allowed parallel six for a little while. Um, and, and any dissonant intervals so far? None. First two measures, all constant intervals, until measure three. Ah, we get our tritone. Okay? Now, that's, that's one type of dissonance which he allows himself. It's called a suspension, and it occurs on the first beat, and it happens every once in a while. And then it gets resolved on the second beat, where we have the F and the altus, and the A and the contus, which is a third. And now, okay, I'll just finish it up in this measure. Notice the C in the tenor part comes in. Now, it actually sounds an octave lower than it's written. That's what the eight underneath the staff means. So you have, that's the lowest note now. C, up to the F and the altus, up to the G and the contus. So you have a constant interval of fifth, but you also have a fourth, which is a dissonance which has to be resolved. And notice he resolves it to an E. 
Okay. So I, that's as far as I'll go. But I just wanted to make those points about that's how they wrote those music. Th- that music. They, they took these individual lines, counterpoint, which they put together, the independence of which had to be preserved, but they had to come in together into a vertical alignment, a harmony, largely consonant intervals, some dissonant intervals, but carefully controlled fashion. So it's the insistence on the use of those consonant intervals at those points of correspondence, which ultimately leads to chords. These points along the vertical grid congeal into harmonic entities, chords, and they give us the modern form of Western harmony. Let me play a brief excerpt from a slightly more modern example. Uh, That's figure nine. This is the first four phrases of Bach's chorale, Wacket auf, ruft uns die Stimme. Um, Awake, the voices are calling. And answer a question that may also be occurring to some of you. Um, But let me first play the example. Um, Now, here's the melody. I was asking, pretending to be someone who didn't know this very well, was, well, can't you just have chords? Can't you just have these triads, as they're called, three-note chords, uh, without any thought of counterpoint? Well, indeed you can, and that's the direction that Western music more and more goes in, and already you see the development of that in Bach, even before Bach. But Bach still preserves a wonderful sense of those independent lines. Let me just play an example of what if I were to take those par- chords and play them as parallels? Okay, I'm getting some funny distortion on this. But I think you heard the basic point. Totally different sound. It's interesting. But it's a totally different sound. Why does he have the sound he has? He has that sound because he does, to a certain degree, like his predecessor, Palestrina, preserve a certain independence between the voices using contrary motion, yet brings them together into point-to-point correspondences of, of harmony, what we call chords. Now, by the 20th century, this is all breaking apart for a number of reasons. You get composers using parallelism all the way from Debussy to Vaughan Williams and Benjamin Britten and others, and then you have atonality and all that. But this is that peak period of Western classical music and what uh, the fourth characteristic of harmony is. So, in conclusion, I hope that I have demonstrated to you the importance of culture, not only in the creation of specific works of musical art, but in the very system of constructing or ordering the music itself, the whole idea of music. God gives us a limited but real domain of freedom in the area of factivity. In the area of music, we in the West have created some very unique and precious treasures. I hope this makes clear how precious and fragile they are. They are not things that anyone, anywhere, at any time could have just come up with naturally. Indeed, they are triumphs of the human spirit built upon the foundation of great culture, that of the West. Thank you very much.